Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we read this as part of the scriptural basis of Lord's Day 25 of the Catechism, which teaches us concerning the means of grace, the preaching, and the sacraments. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf, for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you, now this I say, that every one of you, Seth, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas, Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. 
and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We read God's word that far. Now let's consider what the Catechism teaches us in Lord's Day 25. The heading of this new section is of the sacraments because the Catechism focuses on the sacraments, but in this Lord's Day it is the means of grace that is the subject which includes the preaching and the sacraments. Lord's Day 25, since then we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. Whence doth this faith proceed? From the Holy Ghost, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof, he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both word and sacraments then ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. For the Holy Ghost teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant or Testament? Two, namely, holy baptism and the Holy Supper. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to see that we can be righteous before God only by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to see that faith, true faith, is a certain knowledge that we have whereby we hold as true all the things that God has promised to us in his word. But that faith is also a hearty confidence in God by which we place all of our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We are saved through faith and through faith alone. Well then, whence doth this faith proceed? The Catechism now asks us. If we are saved and justified by faith alone, then where does that faith come from? How does that faith come into existence in our hearts? How does that faith grow in our hearts? How is that faith preserved in our hearts and nourished 
in our lives so that there is faith in Christ in us to the end of our life. Whence doth faith proceed? That's the question the Catechism places before us this morning. And the answer that it gives us is that faith comes from the Holy Ghost, who works faith through the preaching of the gospel and confirms faith by the use of the sacraments. The preaching of the gospel and the holy sacraments are sometimes called the means of grace. God is chiefly pleased to use the preaching and the sacraments to pour out the grace of salvation upon us and through that grace to give us the faith whereby we are saved. Of course, we know that God uses many means in our lives to encourage us, to strengthen us. God uses the means of godly music that we might sing or that we might listen to. God uses the means of good godly conversation in the midst of the communion of saints to edify us, to comfort us, to build us up. God uses many means in our lives to strengthen us spiritually. But the Catechism maintains, and the Scriptures teach, that God chiefly uses two means to bestow his grace upon us, and those are the preaching of the gospel and the holy sacraments. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that too in this first chapter, this beautiful chapter of 1 Corinthians. For example, in verse 18, he says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And then he says in verse 21 that after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, by this activity which the world thinks is foolish, to save us who believe it, to save us whom he would call through it. The preaching of the gospel and the sacraments are the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So let's consider them this morning, the power of the preaching and sacraments. Notice, first of all, that they direct us to Christ. Notice, secondly, that they are authorized by Christ. And notice, thirdly, that they work faith in Christ in us. The Lord is pleased to bestow upon us the grace of salvation, which works faith in our hearts by means of the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments which direct our faith to Jesus Christ. And that, first of all, this morning. The whole point of the preaching and the sacraments is that they direct us to Jesus Christ as the only ground of our salvation. Notice the emphasis that the Catechism places on that. God is pleased to work faith in us through sacraments which seal and declare to us the promise of the gospel that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. The sacraments are intended to direct our faith to that one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Notice the next question. 
Are both word and sacraments then both ordained and appointed to this end to direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. For the Holy Ghost teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon the one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. When the Catechism speaks of preaching and sacraments, the Catechism teaches us it's all about Christ. It's all intended to point us to Christ. Now let's focus just for a moment on the preaching. The Catechism is teaching us, and the Scriptures teach us, that God bestows the grace of salvation that works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the cross. The preaching of Christ crucified, the preaching that sets forth Jesus. A sermon. What is a sermon? A sermon is not a lecture on abstract theological concepts. A sermon is not a rant on the political issues of the day. A sermon is not a personal account of personal experiences that are intended to inspire us to live a better life. But a sermon is an exposition of Scripture that mines out of the Scripture the riches of the Gospel and sets forth before us Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what a sermon is. That's not just what a sermon must be, but that's what a sermon is. Anything that is not that is not a sermon. Not in the technical sense of the word, because a sermon is the preaching of the cross, the preaching of Christ crucified and risen from the dead as the only ground of our salvation. The preacher must set forth from all of the scriptures Christ and him crucified as our Savior and Lord. It doesn't matter if the preacher is preaching from the Old Testament or from the New Testament. It doesn't make a difference if he has chosen as his text a story or a psalm or a proverb or something from Ecclesiastes or the Song of Solomon or one of the prophets or a text from one of the epistles of Paul or even the prophecies of the end times. Whatever his text might be, the duty of the preacher is to take that text and to see in that text Jesus. And from that text, to set forth Christ before us as our Lord and Savior and the only ground of our salvation. Now, the preacher must not only set forth Christ and him crucified, but then the preacher must summon us and beckon us to come to Christ. He must say, this is Christ, the only way of salvation. Come to him. Believe in him. Rest in him. Embrace him for your salvation. Because there is no other way to the Father. There is no other ground of salvation. There is no other way for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, none of that means or implies that a preacher may 
never explain theological concepts in the sermon, or that the preacher may never even mention the issues that are being debated in politics, or that a preacher may never give personal experiences or insights in his sermon. It certainly does not mean that the preacher may not or must not make practical application of the text to our lives and show how the text guides us to live a godly Christian life and to abound in good works. No, the preacher must do that. But it means that first and foremost, above all things, the emphasis of the sermon, every sermon must be to thrust Christ into the foreground and say, now follow Christ. Believe in Christ and live for Christ. Find all of your comfort in Christ. When the preacher does that, God uses it as a means of grace. Isn't that what the apostle is teaching in the chapter we read? Verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize. He doesn't even want to emphasize the baptizing part. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. The cross of Christ must not be displaced. The cross of Christ must not be minimized. The cross of Christ must be placed into the foreground. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Or verses 23 and 24, we preach what? Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The preaching. Now we turn to the sacraments for a moment. And we see that the Catechism teaches that the sacraments don't do something totally different from the preaching. But the sacraments are given and ordained to do the very same thing as the preaching, to do it more fully than the preaching in the form of a visible sign and seal. A sacrament is not a mere custom or tradition. A custom that is a rite of initiation into the church or a custom or tradition that has inherent power to save in and of itself. Sacraments are not tools in the hands of the church so that the church has this power, apart from Christ, to give or withhold salvation according to the whims and fancy of the church. The sacraments or another way of setting forth Christ, another way of thrusting Christ into the foreground and the cross of Christ as our only hope for salvation. Therefore, the church must administer the sacraments in such a way that they lead people to see Christ. They lead people to gaze through that holy, visible sign and seal upon the cross of the Lord Jesus, the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body is the only way of salvation. The sacraments must be administered in a way that they direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus as the only ground of our salvation. 
The sacraments must not thrust into the foreground anything else. They must not distract us. We must not have our attention upon the little baby that is being brought forward for baptism so that all of our attention is on that little one. Or all of our attention is on the water that's being sprinkled. Or all of our attention is on the minister pouring the wine in the cup and making sure that we don't spill our little glass of wine and that we chew and swallow that bread. But all of the attention must be directed through those signs and seals to Christ. The water pointing us to the washing of our sins by his blood the breaking of the bread pointing to the breaking of his body, the pouring of the wine to the shedding of his blood, the eating and drinking to our appropriation of him through faith. All the attention must be there. That's the whole point of the preaching and sacraments. That's the power of the preaching and sacraments, that they lead us to the foot of the cross. But what exactly are preaching and sacraments. What exactly are the preaching and sacraments that do that? Well, we begin again with the preaching. Preaching of the gospel is the proclamation of the good news of salvation by a man, not a woman, but a man, whom Christ himself has called and sent through the church. In the passage that we read, the apostle uses at least three different words to refer to preaching. He refers to it with the Greek word logos, which means word. Preaching is the word of God. He uses the word oiangelion, which means gospel. It is a proclamation of the gospel. And he uses the word kerugma, which means a proclamation. That last word is a word that teaches us that the nature of preaching is that it is an official, authoritative proclamation of a message by someone who has been sent by someone in higher authority, by a king. A king has sent a messenger, a herald, to proclaim his message to the people that he wants to hear it. Well, can anybody do that? Can anybody take upon himself that authority to go into the world, into the church, into the mission field, and proclaim on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ the message he would have us to hear? The apostle teaches that the answer to that is no. In Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, he says, How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The apostle implies by that that not everyone is sent. The idea is not that all Christians are sent to preach the gospel, but the idea is that there are certain men whom God sends And they are the ones clothed with authority from Christ to preach his word. Now, in the beginning of the New Testament church, Christ personally and directly called 12 men and sent them, the apostles, to preach that message. But after he ascended into heaven, 
he began to call and send men into the ministry through the church. And he has done so up till this time today. Through the church, Christ trains men in the seminary. That is, men who feel internally a burden for the ministry, who feel in their hearts that they might be called by God to devote their whole life to that ministry. So they enroll in the seminary, and through the professors of theology, Christ teaches them, trains them, enhances the gifts that they have until the point where they're able to be examined. And then Christ, through the church, examines them and approves them and judges them qualified for the ministry of the word and sacraments. And when the churches declare that a man is eligible for a call, then one of the churches of Christ sends a call to that man. Come over and help us. Come over and preach in our midst. And when that man is led to accept that call, he comes and he is ordained into the ministry with the laying on of the hands of other ministers. Symbolically, he is placed into the office of the ministry by Christ himself, and he is clothed with the authority to preach the gospel of Christ. When that man, who has been lawfully called and sent by Christ through the church, stands up in the pulpit, or stands up in a public place being sent there by the church, or stands up in the midst of the heathen on the mission field, and lifts up his voice and speaks the oracles of God from the scriptures. That is the preaching of the gospel. And that is the chief means by which God is evidently pleased to save those who believe. In the second place, there is the sacraments. The sacraments, we are told, are holy, visible signs and seals appointed by God, instituted by Christ, and administered by the same men who have been authorized by Christ to preach. The same men who are authorized to preach are also authorized to administer the sacraments. The sacraments are signs and seals. But they're very special and sacred signs and seals. The word sacrament itself means something sacred. They are signs and seals. Now, God created a world in the beginning that is full of imagery. God created this world full of wonderful, beautiful, fascinating creatures that are visible to our eyes. We, look, we can look at them and we can learn spiritual things through physical things, earthly things. That truth is the whole foundation of Jesus' teaching in parables. How can Jesus teach in parables? Because God created the whole world to be this great display of signs and pictures that point to spiritual things. For, so, for example, he instituted marriage in the beginning. A relationship between a man and a woman whom he joins together and makes them to be one flesh until death parts them. 
And he tells us that that visible relationship between a husband and wife is a picture of the mystery of Christ and the church. There is the imagery of a farmer going into the field and sowing seed. And Jesus says that is a picture of the preaching of the gospel in all the world. The world is that field and the seed is that word. Christ preaches through ministers and spreads the seed. There's the mustard seed which is so tiny but it grows into this big plant and Jesus says that's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. It starts out very small but it grows into this mighty reality. There's the fishing net that captures fish of all kinds and Jesus says that's a picture of the kingdom that embraces men of every color and nationality and race. And countless other pictures But none of those things are sacraments. A sacrament is defined as a holy, visible sign and seal appointed by God and instituted by Christ. Notice the Catechism's definition of that in question 68. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant or Testament? In the Old Covenant, it could be argued that God instituted the Passover feast and circumcision as two particularly sacred events, ceremonies, sacraments. But now the shedding of blood is past with the dawning of the New Covenant. And so Christ has instituted two new sacraments, baptism and the Holy Supper, only those two. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages developed a a vast and elaborate system of seven sacraments. But the error in that is not that those seven things are not sacred. Some of them are not, but many of them are legitimate and important ceremonies in the church, such as marriage and confession of sin and so forth. But those are not sacraments because They're not instituted by Christ to be observed and practiced and administered and participated in by the whole church until he comes again and to point to his work on the cross. They don't all do that. For example, ordination of a minister into the ministry is not a sacrament. In Rome it is, but not in reality. That only affects the one man who is ordained into the ministry. The sacraments are for all confessing members of the church. The apostle speaks of those two sacraments in the chapter we read as well. Although he does not emphasize baptism, notice in verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize. That can throw us off perhaps. But the apostle doesn't mean to say that Christ did not give him authority to baptize. That's obvious from the chapter because he admits, I baptized Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. If he didn't have authority to baptize, then he shouldn't have baptized anybody. But he did. He did baptize. So what he means is, Christ didn't send me primarily to baptize, but to plunge into the heathen world with the preaching of the gospel. Nevertheless, he does mention baptism. Baptism was instituted by Christ during his ministry and especially 
before his ascension in the Great Commission when he said, go into all the world, preach and baptize. Became a sacrament. The apostle also mentions later in the epistle the Holy Supper in chapter 11. He writes, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So even the apostle recognizes there are these two special sacred ceremonies which we now call sacraments, holy visible signs and seals. When does a sacrament take place? When that man whom Christ has called, sent, and ordained into the ministry of the word and sacraments takes water and applies it to an adult convert or to a child of believers and the assembly of the saints. When that same man takes bread, breaks it, distributes it through the elders, and we take it and we eat it, and he takes wine and pours it and distributes it to us, and we take it and drink it, when that takes place, accompanied by the word of God in the assembly of the saints, that's when a sacrament takes place. And God is pleased to use the sacraments, too, as a means of grace. Secondary to the preaching, supplementary, as the Catechism puts it, the sacraments more fully declare and seal to us. Sacraments don't do something the preaching doesn't do. It's not that the preaching is deficient. The preaching does everything that we need. But God adds the sacraments to declare and seal more fully to us. That is, to teach us and to promise and assure us more fully that we have the forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood. Now, in regard to the ministers of the word and sacraments, the men clothed with authority from Christ to preach and administer the sacraments, we must beware of the kind of contentious spirit that the apostle mentions in this chapter. Remember, the context of Paul raising all of these things is that there was contention in the church at Corinth. And the contention was that some were saying, either in their hearts or perhaps even with their mouths, I am of Paul, and others, I am of Apollos, and others, I am of Cephas, Peter, and others, I am of Christ. And we might think, well, that's the right thing to say, right? I am of Christ. But we have to understand when they said, I am of Christ, what they meant was, I'm not with any of you. I'm on the good side. I'm with Christ. And I reject all the rest of you. All of that was schism and contention in the church. And it ought not to have been. The apostle rebukes the Corinthians in verse 13 when he asks the rhetorical question, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Those were implied rebukes to the congregation. 
They knew the answer to that. No, of course not. We know that Paul was not crucified for us. Jesus was. We know that we were not baptized in the name of Paul. We were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well then, you ought to welcome and receive all of the preachers of the gospel. You ought to embrace all of the men who have been clothed with authority from Christ to preach the good news of salvation. All of those men who faithfully set forth Christ crucified as the only ground of our salvation must be received, must be welcomed to the pulpit, must be heard. Those men who preach the gospel in harmony with the creeds of the church which set forth the purity of the truth of the gospel. We must hear them and receive that word. There's always a danger for us that there might be this minister or that minister that we don't really care for or that we place ourselves up in judgment over that minister and we, we hammer upon him and criticize him because we don't think that he's bringing the gospel exactly the way that we think it ought to be brought. But unless that man is preaching blatant heresies, obvious false doctrine that is out of harmony with the scriptures and the creeds, and is preaching another gospel, is preaching man's gospel, then of course we must not welcome him to the pulpit. Then he ought not to stand in this pulpit. Then we ought not to hear him. Because then the apostle has to say about him, let him be anathema. But we must welcome those ministers of the gospel, even with their weaknesses, who bring to us the gospel of Christ and him crucified. Because God is pleased, through the preaching and sacraments, to save us who believe. The question of this Lord's Day is, if we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and not by our works, then where does that faith come from? And the answer to that question is not that faith comes from us. That's Arminianism, Pelagianism. That's the idea that we, by our own strength, can produce this faith in ourselves, and then we're right back into the camp of works. We're right back into saying that, well, there is at least something that we do that becomes the ground of our salvation. But the answer of the Catechism in Scripture is, this faith comes from the Holy Ghost. That is, it comes from God. Faith is a gift of God. God sends the Holy Spirit into us, and the Holy Spirit works in us. He regenerates us. He quickens us together with Christ. He unites us to Christ so that the life of Christ flows to us. And then he works and moves in our hearts so that when we hear the gospel, we believe. We embrace the Christ of the gospel. We trust in the Christ of the preaching. We rely upon him and rest in him. And all the while the world says, 
Preaching is foolishness. Preaching is foolishness. Your sacraments are foolishness. Why do you go to church? Why do you waste your time with that? There's better things to do. But the child of God knows that preaching and those sacraments, that's my lifeline. Because the Holy Spirit works through that preaching and through those sacraments. I need it. It's my food and drink for my soul. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. And that doesn't mean that every single person who comes into the church and hears the preaching, or every person who eats the bread or receives the waters of baptism, receives that grace of salvation. Not everyone does. The apostle indicates that too when he says that the preaching is a power of salvation to those who believe. Not to everyone, but to those who believe. And those who believe, he says in verse 24, are those who are called unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek or, or whatever your natural background. Those who are called through the preaching, for them, it is a power unto salvation. Well, that just begs the question, who gets called through the preaching? Doesn't everybody get called through the preaching? In a sense, in a sense, everybody who hears the preaching is called to come to Christ. But there's another sense in which only the elect are called. The same apostle teaches in Romans 8 that whom God did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So there the apostle shows this golden chain of salvation that roots back in eternal predestination. Those whom God has elected before the foundation of the world, he calls through the preaching and draws them to Christ by the Holy Spirit so that they believe. The preaching and the sacraments are turned into a glorious, saving power. Not by the eloquence of the minister, not by his dynamic delivery, but by the Holy Spirit. So that whether the minister is dynamic or not, whether he knows how to command a presence in the pulpit or not, when he preaches Christ crucified and calls men to believe, that becomes a power unto salvation in everyone who believes. Because it draws us to a living faith, and it's by faith that we are justified. So let us have a renewed appreciation. Not that we didn't have an appreciation, but let us be refreshed this morning in our appreciation for the means of grace, the chief means of grace. We appreciate good, godly Christian music. We appreciate good, godly fellowship in the church. And we appreciate many other means that God uses for our encouragement. But let us have a deep love, above all, for the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments which take place in the church on the Lord's Day. Because our carnal mind 
is always tempting us not to value the Lord's Day, not to value the sermons and the sacraments and to make our plans in a way that doesn't take into consideration the preaching and sacraments. So rather, let us have a zeal for the house of the Lord and the way that he feeds us here and make diligent use of the means of grace from Sunday to Sunday because here sheep may safely graze. Here sheep may graze in the lush green pastures of God's word and drink beside the still waters. Amen. Our Father, we give thanks to thee that thou in thy grace dost give us the preaching of the gospel and the holy sacraments. We thank thee, Lord, for pure and faithful preaching, knowing that there is a famine of the word in many places of the world. We pray, O Lord, give us not a famine of the word. Give us an appreciation, a thankfulness for the means of grace, that we may attend diligently to them, and may we be filled